on the liturgical calendar this morning, it's the second Sunday of Advent. On my calendar, it's the weekend between the last day of classes and the first day of final exam week. So two things about this. Uh, the sermon's probably going to end up being a bit short. And second, I'm starting already to hear from students who suddenly realize they have no hope, at least within a narrow sphere of their life. The concept of hope is an interesting one. It's a biblical concept. I'm not exactly sure it's a unique concept in the world, but it's pretty close. It's certainly very rare to find so much expression of hope for the future. We don't find this when we look at pagan sources from Greece or Rome, for example. When Pandora opens her box and all the evil things fly into the world, the only thing left in the box is hope. And then that box is closed and put away. In the face of all the ugliness in the world, hope lies locked up in a box. The Greek writer Hesiod wrote about the ages of man. He's divided them into five different, uh, five different ages, and each one gets worse and worse and worse and worse and harder and harder and harder. If we look to the East, we see the, the, the concept of karma as it's expressed in Jainism and Hinduism and uh, Buddhism. Where you're held accountable for things you did in a, la- a past life that you don't even remember. And there's no hope. I remember reading of Mother Teresa when she was just simply Sister Teresa, 14, 15 year old, Albanian nun, um, dragging in people dying off the streets and the people around her would throw rocks at her to get her to stop. They have to suffer for what they did in their last life. They have to, you're harming them because now they're going to, if you're helping them, then they're going to come back and have to suffer again. Hope for the future. I'm not exactly sure it's unique to the Bible, but it's certainly rare when we look around the world. But hope fills all of our readings today. We open with Isaiah, and it may not appear to us in our ears how brutally offensive it would have been to its first readers. The Jewish people had always used two images to describe their nation. One was a vine, a grapevine, the other an olive tree. And they'd taken pride in the house of Jesse. Jesse was David's father, the grandson of Ruth and Boaz. But Isaiah tells them their pride in this family is useless, the pride in the nation is useless, because that tree, or that vine, has been cut down. This would have been brutally offensive. But Isaiah says there will be a single shoot, a single branch coming out of that stump. And the symbolism is that one person would arise out of the stump. Have you ever seen, I'm sure you have, seen one shoot coming up out of a stump? It's tiny and it's weak, but that branch can grow into a powerful new tree. And as we read Isaiah, the language changes very quickly to describing not just a shoot coming out of a stump, but a king, a new king, a powerful king who will rule justly and wisely, a king who sees past the surface to what's really important. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He will reign with righteousness. And this new king will bring things that hate each other together. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb 
and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze together, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Gators and bulldogs will feast together. That's in the original Hebrew. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This new king is even going to command the animal world. It'll be a peaceful place. There's hope. The world around us seems to be growing more selfish and corrupt every day. I guess people have always said that. Maybe as you get older, you just start seeing it more. It just gets older and older and older. The values that spring from an acknowledgement that we're the special creation of a personal God seem put on the shelf of history and gathering dust. Drug overdoses, homelessness, mental illness, violence, it seems more prevalent. I can look at numbers, but it seems like it's so much more. Parents are concerned about social media, the influence of, of confusing ideas. I'm so glad my, the internet wasn't around when I was a kid. I'm not sure I'm glad it's around now, but I... And in the face of this, is it possible to feel hopeful? Well, 2,500 years ago, hopelessness was staring the little kingdom of Judah in the face. In the 8th century BC, the Assyrian army had ransacked much of the world through the Middle East and had taken the northern kingdom of Israel. Those people were taken, distributed around the empire, and they disappeared. We talk about the 10 lost tribes of Israel. Those are those tribes who, who are gone to us now. And a century later, the Babylonian army is on the rise. And anybody could see that Judah would receive attention from them soon. And how could Judah survive? She's got no army to speak of, no money, few allies. The Babylonians had conquered greater nations than Judah. And it just seemed inevitable that the nation would be obliterated. Yet Isaiah gives a glimmer of hope on the horizon. Isaiah says much of doom and despair as well, but he also speaks about hope. He speaks of a special leader who'd be raised up, a leader after God's own heart. Isaiah was deeply disappointed by the politicians of his day. He writes about how they took bribes, they were corrupt, they ignored the poor, they turned a blind eye to justice. One of the kings during Isaiah's prophetic ministry was Ahaz, it's interesting, in the Bible, the, the Assyrian inscriptions we have call him Jehoahaz. In the Bible, that Jeho, the reference to Jehovah God, is taken away from his name entirely. He turns his back on Jehovah God. He worships the Assyrian gods because they seem so much more powerful. Isaiah warned him to turn back to God, and Ahaz turned his back on Isaiah. He'd even tried to use the gold vessels in the temple to purchase to bribe Assyria and prevent the march on Israel, but he'd failed. He was just another ruler who'd let his people down because time and time again, rulers and government leaders do that. How often are election promises simply cast away as soon as the votes are counted? 
But in chapter 11, verse 1, Isaiah offers hope. A shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Just as David himself had come out of obscurity, just a kid tending sheep in a field, Isaiah is saying that a new king is going to emerge, and that he'll be greater than David, greater than Solomon, greater than all the kings of Israel and Judah combined. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. This king's rule will be characterized by wisdom, righteousness, knowledge, and understanding. This king would make no political blunders. Corruption would not plague this government. This king would have a personal integrity that was spotless, policies that were wise and wonderful. And this leader would use his power for peace. Again, the wolf living with the lamb, the leopard living, lying down with a kid, a, a, a goat, the calf and the lion and the fatling calf together, and a little child shall lead them. Peace would be the mark of this leader's rule. Sadly, as we look at the history of the world, times of world peace are very short and fleeting. But Isaiah insists that under God's ruler, there'll be no incompetence, no corruption, no violence, only peace and wisdom and understanding. And Isaiah doesn't stop there. He portrays people coming from all parts of the world like a scattered army rallying to his banner, to his signal. All the nations of the world will rally around this leader. This leader will lead a victorious, redeemed community. People will come from the east and the west. Elsewhere in Isaiah, Isaiah writes that we'll have to build new highways to carry people to see this new king from all over the world. It's a vivid, poetic picture, and we have to ask, could it happen? Who is this root of Jesse, a ruler to whom people will rally, who will restore creation to harmony? Well, now we know that that ruler is Jesus. Some 700 years before Jesus came, Isaiah predicted the first coming of God's king as well as his return. Centuries before Jesus came, Isaiah opened up a window on Jesus' life and work. People from around the world have been coming to him ever since his death and resurrection. And as the New Testament unfolds, we learn that the coming of God's king is in two parts. The first coming is a rescue operation and then a return to reveal King Jesus in all his might, majesty, dominion, and power. He will bring perfect justice to bear. And with his unveiling of his own glory, he will reveal the glory of all those who truly turn to him. All the nations will worship him. His first coming we celebrate at Christmas. In the season of Advent, the four weeks before Christmas, we focus on the reality of his return. The message of Advent is that the judge is coming. Christ is returning to judge the world. But the big surprise is that the judge has already taken the punishment for that judgment. Even John the Baptist in our gospel reading only halfway gets it. John the Baptist, as we read through the gospels, increasingly becomes more and more important. He gets a brief mention in Mark, and by the time we get to John, We have pages and pages about John the Baptist. 
John the Baptist was the big story in Jewish religious history in the first century. If you had stopped writing, and even by the year 100, the big story would still be about John the Baptist. We know that because we have an historian, Josephus, who wrote about the history of the, of, the, of the Hebrew people. He's only writing 40 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And he mentions Jesus. He says, there was this guy named Jesus. He was the Messiah. He rose from the dead three days later. But let me really tell you about what's really going on. John the Baptist. You got to listen to this guy. Everybody came out to listen to John the Baptist. It goes on and on about how wonderful John the Baptist's ministry was. Um, Josephus writes he was so moved by John the Baptist that he had himself joined the Essenes for three years and lived in a cage and sorry cave. And uh, and uh, it goes on and on about John the Baptist. There's still a group of people in who live in southern Iraq who don't exactly worship John the Baptist, but they claim that John the Baptist was the Messiah. They, they say his teachings of repentance are what we need to be listening to. John the Baptist is such an interesting character. When I became a vicar, vicar at um, uh, St. Christopher's in Crystal River, my first Sunday was the first Sunday of Advent, and I preached about John the Baptist. And the second Sunday, I preached about John the Baptist. And the third Sunday, I preached about John the Baptist. And I had to say, okay, I know, I know Jesus is important, but I'm not going to keep preaching about John the Baptist forever. But John the Baptist was a mover and a shaker. And he says that terrifying judgment is coming. But he points to another who's coming. He points to Jesus. He says that terrifying judgment is coming. And then he points to Jesus. He says, someone whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. That may not mean much to us. But in particular parts of the world, shoes are considered very, very, very dirty. The um, writer, commentator, um, Jonah Goldberg, tells the story of his father, Sid Goldberg. And um, his father did all kinds of crazy things. But one thing he did for a while was that he, he went to places in the third world. He was hired by the airlines to negotiate airport arrangements, which basically meant bribing all the local officials. And he went to one third world country. And um, he, was, he was meeting with one of these powerful leaders. And... Um, and the leader said, oh, you're, you're from America. And he says, yes. And he says, I've been to America three times. He says, it's a lovely country. It's a wonderful place. The only thing I hate about America is that you can't get rich there. And Mr. Goldberg nodded. They kept bugging him. And, and, and so the man keep, kept talking. And finally, Sid Goldberg said, I, I'm sorry, I, I, I what do, you, what, do you, what do you mean you can't get rich in America? We're the land of opportunity. We have lots of rich people. And the local leader laughed and he said, I never touch my shoes. That's rich. He has a servant who brings in his shoes to him and ties them and knots them and takes them off his feet at night. He has a servant who does that. I mean, Bill Gates has got lots of money, but I bet he ties his own shoes. I kind of get what that guy meant. He says, there's someone coming whose sandals I'm not even worthy to carry. I'm not even worthy to be the servant who unties the shoes. And he says that judgment is coming. The axe will be laid to the tree. Terrible judgment is coming. But even John the Baptist doesn't get it. He doesn't get that this powerful king will take the judgment onto himself. But the one who makes the judgment will pay the penalty. 
suffer the, the effects of the judgment and he'll do that to redeem his people. And in this special time of year, Advent, we look forwarding, forward to celebrating the first coming of our king to us, our redeeming king, our king who judges us and then carries our judgment. And then we look forward to the return of our king who will set all things right. In Jesus' name, amen.